All right, so we've got a couple of readings this morning. The first is from Isaiah chapter 42, and the words will be up on the screen there. Here is my servant whom I uphold, whom I uphold my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his teaching the islands will put their hope. And then moving forward to Luke chapter 2. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? the crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptised. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased.
Good morning, my name's Stephen, I'm one of the ministers here. I've um, been to Alpine areas quite a few times now, like uh, I've been to Kosciuszko a few times and also Cradle Mountain in Tasmania too. And every time I'm in these kind of places, I do a walk up on the, um, on the mountaintops. And I always seem to be there in, either in summer or just after summer because usually when I'm there, it's really hot. But in every alpine place that I, I go to, I always see these signs and, and they say things like, you need to be prepared for all kinds of weather. You've got to have all these clothes for minus temperatures, even in summer. Don't ignore this sign. They're kind of preachy, these signs. And, and for some reason, I find them kind of annoying. I think it's because the, you know, the sun is shining. I can feel myself getting sunburnt. And I've already got all the essential gear in my backpack, like chocolate and sandwiches and lollies. And this sign is telling me to add in thermals and ski jackets for six people. It feels like a joke. You know, so you kind of chuck in a a few jumpers, but my heart is never in it. Like one time, uh, about six years ago, we caught the the chairlift up from Threadbow to the top of the mountains and and then did a 13k Uh, return trip to the peak of Kosciuszko and I was hot and tired from carrying the backpack and at one point I was carrying at least two kids and I was thinking this is ridiculous I'm so glad I'm not also carrying six ski jackets and six sets of thermals right now now that's been my experience every time I've been to an alpine region every time until about two months ago in December, we did a, an overnight uh, hike on the top of Kosciuszko. And thank, thankfully, we thought, because we were going overnight, we, we probably should actually go a bit more prepared. And so we did pack some serious jackets. But when we got up on the mountaintop, there was a whole heap more snow than we were expecting for summertime. And it, you know, it was great fun in the snow at first. We were enjoying it. But then as the sun set and our shoes and socks were wet, and we didn't have any dry ones, and we were huddled around the burner, as you can see there. I think I melted a few socks. And we started shivering as the wind blew. Suddenly, those jackets, which seemed ridiculous when I was packing them, suddenly they were very inadequate. And as soon as the sun had gone down, we huddled in our sleeping bags, only just warm enough to be okay. And do you know what? A couple of days after we did that walk, a snowstorm hit the peaks. So we drove up to the start of the walk to have a look. And had we been out there on that 20k loop somewhere, I hate to think what would have happened to us. You know, on that hot day six years earlier in the same place, carrying the backpack, carrying the kids, I just couldn't picture the danger at all. It just didn't feel possible back then. But standing there a couple of months ago, feeling the cold, seeing the ice and the snow, and not even being able to see the path in in front of me, suddenly I could understand why those warning signs about being prepared were so preachy. That experience of struggling to look beyond how things are right now and, and, and being prepared for how things might be... That's such a a universal human experience, don't you reckon? In small ways and 
And in big ways, we all experience this. Like if it's really cold in Adelaide and, and you're going somewhere hot for holidays, it's really hard to force yourself to pack shorts. Or if I've just had a big breakfast and I'm about to head out for the day, I find it really hard to be bothered to grab lunch. I have a failure of imagination on a, on a small scale and I end up not prepared. But you, you see this on a bigger scale too. Like we eat unhealthily or we, we don't exercise or we smoke or we drink too much and then we find out that our cholesterol or our, or our blood pressure is up or we have cancer and we're shocked as if we didn't see it coming. It, it's hard to be prepared. It, it takes a, a clarity of mind that doesn't come naturally to us. It takes imagination. And often it, it takes something to shake us up before we take things seriously. Now this is true in, in lots of areas of life, but this is particularly true when it comes to God. Most of us have a failure of imagination with God. Most of us don't have clarity of mind when it comes to Him. We struggle enormously to think beyond life right now, what we can see and, and touch right in front of us. And we can't imagine past this moment to what will one day be when we face God. But knowing what we know about human nature, about our own nature, this shouldn't surprise us at all. Just because people can't imagine a day when they'll face God doesn't mean God is imaginary. Doesn't mean giving an answer to Him is imaginary. What it means is most people right now are completely unprepared in the one area of life where it matters the most. The part of the Bible that we're looking at today tells us three things about how we can make sure that we're not in that position. It tells us that being prepared for God means being prepared to repent. It tells us that being prepared for God is vital because God's anger is coming. And finally, it tells us that being prepared for God is, is possible because Jesus is prepared to fight for us. So let's have a look at this passage and let's see how we can be prepared in this one area of life that matters the most. Let's look at the first thing Luke chapter 3 tells us. Being prepared for God means being prepared to repent. Now as we heard before, we're starting a series in Luke today. And we're going to be starting at chapter 3. We've looked at Luke chapter 1 and 2 at some point in the past. So we're jumping in in chapter 3. But I don't know if you remember, but at the beginning of his gospel, Luke, Luke writes this. He says, Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I decided to write an orderly account. And so look at how chapter 3 starts. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Ennis and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. These are, are real people in real places. Luke 
doesn't think that he's making up a story here. Luke knows he's writing down what really happened in history. And he writes it down so that we can know for sure how to be prepared for God. And Luke tells us that what happened is that before Jesus became well known, there was a guy called John who came with a message from God. And have a look at it in verse 3. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And Luke says John wasn't just some random bloke with a random message. Luke says this is part of what God was doing in history. He says this is what God said would happen over 700 years earlier in Isaiah 40 verse 4. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. John has a, has a role to prepare God's people for his coming. And the way to get prepared, he says, is repent. And John talks about baptism, he talks about repentance, and he talks about sin. But I reckon none of these things particularly resonate with us as a culture anymore. They all sound kind of religious, like religious jargon. And on the surface, none of them really seem to have much to do with everyday life. But before we, we jump to thinking about what these things say to us and our lives, we need to try and hear John's message in the way that they would have heard it back then. For them, this, this mix of, of baptism, of repentance, of, of the forgiveness of sins, it, it wasn't completely weird. They were, they were quite familiar with each of these things. So with the idea of sin, they knew that in their lives... At times, they did things that defied God. They knew they did things they shouldn't do. They knew they didn't do things they should have done. Sin is not giving God the place in our lives that he deserves. It's like a, a coup where we, we try to lock God out from calling the shots in our lives. And we try to take his place and rule our own life. Now, they knew back then that that they'd sinned against God like that, they knew that both individually and that they'd done that together as a nation. And they were familiar with the idea of repentance. Repentance is all about turning back. It's all about admitting that you've not let God rule in your life and it's all about handing back that control to God. They knew they needed to do that, and they knew it again, both individually and as a nation together, they needed to do that. And they were also familiar with baptism, although in a slightly different form. They were familiar with washing things and even washing themselves with water as a kind of symbolic way of pointing to the fact that they needed to be cleansed from God. They were familiar with all these things, but John brought all these things together in a really black and white kind of way. What was confronting about John and his message was just how absolute it was. John's message was that everyone needed to repent. Ordinary people, mum, dad, sweet old granny, but also the elite people too, and the religious people, so the leaders, the priests, the rabbis. And another thing that was confronting 
was actually the lack of religiousness of what John was doing. You didn't go to a, a beautiful, impressive temple. You didn't go to a priest. You went outside all of that to the wilderness, to the muddy banks of a river. You went to a wild, homeless stranger who pushed you under the water as though you were dead and buried to an old way of living and then pulled you up as if you were rising alive to a washed and new way of living. John's message, message, it was so black and white, so drastic and so universal that that it's kind of surprising in a way that it was also so popular. Crowds flocked out to him in the wilderness, out in the middle of nowhere to be baptised. Now, obviously... Something about his message was resonating with where people were at at that time. They could see that they needed to turn back to God in a, in a big way. And they could see that the way that they'd always done things just wasn't working. But the interesting thing about John is he's, he's, not, he's not interested in creating a social phenomenon. He's not interested in, in being a, a populist figure. He was interested in just one thing. Real repentance. So look at what he says to them in verse 7. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? Now here we see another thing about being prepared for God. Here we see that being prepared for God is vital because his anger is coming. We don't like to think of God being angry. But John says that's exactly what he is. And weirdly, John doesn't like to think of these people escaping God's anger. In fact, he sounds quite annoyed that they're trying to escape it. Imagine it. You know, they've, they've walked a day or days to get there because they want to get baptized. And instead, they get insulted. I reckon, you know, brood of vipers sounds kind of highbrow, don't you think? It sounds kind of sophisticated or posh. You brood of vipers. But put it in Australian English, and really John is just saying, you bunch of snakes. And what's he got against them? Well, look at what he says in verse 8. He says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. These people are missing the point. It seems that they're interested in escaping God's anger, but they're not actually interested in real repentance. They're not actually interested in turning back to God. They claim that they want to be children of God, but in reality, they don't want to be the sort of children that God wants them to be. And John says to them, that's not being children of God at all. That's being children, brood of vipers. That's exactly the toxic way of relating to God that deserves his anger. You see, to John, the the water matters very little to him. Him pushing people under the water, that matters very little to him. The whole point of his baptism is what it points to. God's anger is coming. And the only way anyone can be prepared to face him is by repentance. He says, real repentance. And real repentance means turning back to God and it means living as children of God. No one should presume they're fine. 
even Abraham's children in verse 8 are not fine. Real repentance is needed. Now, as we've seen, John's message, for whatever reason, it, it resonated with many of them, even though they would have found it so confronting and so shocking. But I don't think John's message resonates with us today. Because we've always been told, we're already all good. We presume we're fine, not by being an Israelite or anything like that, or being an Australian. Just by being alive, we presume we're fine. The default is that we're good at heart. You know, are you a decent enough person? Yeah. Well, you're all good. And we presume God is for us and has nothing against us. And if he has something against us, well, then obviously that's his problem and and not ours. If God doesn't want me for who I am, I don't think I want God. He can take me or leave me. But who is he to think he can change me? I'm not going to repent of who I am. I'm proud of who I am. Now, we've always been told that the most important thing in life is being true to ourselves. The way to face life prepared, in the most prepared way that we can face it, is to be prepared to be who we really are, our most authentic selves. And so automatically, the idea of repenting is suspect to us. Why should I conform myself to the expectations of someone else? Why should I let someone else call sin what I call being me? But the shocking thing is, God says to us through John in verse 9, the axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Do we really believe that we have the right to tell God how things are going to be in our lives? Do I really believe that God needs to bend his designs and plans around my personality, my sexuality, my gender expression, my dreams, my desires, my priorities? You know, that's the very essence of defiance of God, actually. But it's also what we naturally live and breathe. And unless we turn away from this kind of madness and turn back to God, we're completely unprepared to face Him. And it leaves us with a choice. We either just ignore God's warning to us, Or we trust him when he says we're a part of this world that needs to be put right. Put right by turning back to him or put right by facing his judgment. What we see next in this part of the Bible is how God intends to put things right in his world. And this brings us to our final point. Being prepared for God is possible Because Jesus is prepared to fight for us. Now back then, as as we, we heard in that reading, some people were starting to wonder, could John 
be the way that God planned to put things right in this world. But John says he just prepares the way for someone more powerful. And look what, look what he says about this person in verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff which with unquenchable fire. Someone is coming who, who will gather those who turn to God and deal with those who refuse to turn to God. Someone is coming who will once and for all time put things right in God's world, in other words. And in verse 21, we, we meet who John's talking about and look at how he's introduced to us. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. Now, this is strange, don't you think? From everything that we, we've heard in John's message, this is really strange. I mean, John preaches a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And he says, someone truly great is going to come who's going to do God's work and, and deal with sinners and set things right. And then we meet Jesus. And if Jesus is this person, surely he doesn't need to repent. Surely he doesn't need his sins to be forgiven. So why would he be getting baptized? Well, what we're seeing here is this is Jesus owning a mission. This is Jesus owning a people, an entire people, including their problems and all. This is Jesus saying that he considers his people are worth fighting for. This is Jesus saying he's prepared to fight for us. He's going to do whatever it takes to own the mess of anyone who turns to him and to wash them from it. This is Jesus declaring war. But not war on us, not war on those who turn to him. This is Jesus declaring war on sin itself, on evil, on death, on sickness, on the devil. This is Jesus declaring war on anything that has a grip on us and would separate us from God. This is Jesus saying he's going to make a way that we can be washed forever because he's going to own our need for washing. I don't know if you remember last week. He who had no sin became sin for us. And this is not just the mission of Jesus, actually. Look at who's involved in this mission in verse 21. We read, and he, As he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come to fight for us, come to make it possible for us to turn back and be a part of what God is doing in this world. And just before we finish, I want to spend a bit of time making sure that we've heard the three things that this part of the Bible is asking us. Now, the first one is, is obvious, really, isn't it? Have we repented? Have you turned back to God? And, and if you haven't, can you see your need to do that? You know, like me, reading the sign at the start of that walk at, at Kosciuszko, I had to make a, a decision, you know, do I pack the ski jackets or not? And no decision, 
just ignoring the sign, was actually a decision. Do I trust how I feel in the sunshine right now? Or do I listen to the sign even though it's a bit preachy? And do I go to the mountaintop prepared? Now this part of the Bible, it's asking a question. Are we going to trust we'll be right? That we don't need to worry about God? Or are we going to listen to God's word to us through John? If you've never turned back to God, you're completely unprepared in the one area of life that matters the most. That's the first obvious thing this part of the Bible is saying to us. And so let me ask you, have you repented? Have you handed control of your life over to God? And if not, do you want to do it today? If you want to do that, let's do it. Come, come and talk to me afterwards. I'd love to help you do that. The next obvious thing this part of the Bible asks us is, is our repentance real? Have you really seen your need to turn back to God and really given over control of your life to Him? Or are you just wanting the benefits of God without actually wanting to give God the place in your life that he demands. Now, this passage, don't hear it wrong, it, it isn't asking us, do we find repentance easy? Do we find repentance, you know, pure joy? It's not asking us, did we repent 20 years ago and it's all been simple to follow God then? Nothing like that. It doesn't ask that. It just asks us if our repentance is real. And if it's real, it, it tells us we will see the fruit of repentance in our lives. It might be an ongoing struggle, but the point is that it's a struggle that we'll take up. You know, repentance is not just a moment in time. It's a way of life. Real repentance is about constantly turning away from the things that are against the character of God. And it's a constant turning towards God, a constant surrendering of, of life to God. And it's turning again and again. To live as children of God. The examples that we, we see in this passage are, are things like turning to generosity and, and mercy towards God's people. The other examples are turning away from greed and exploitation and the abuse of power. These are some of the fruit of repentance because these are the sorts of things that, that you would expect from the children of God. They're the sorts of things that flow from the character of God. Are we producing the fruit of repentance? Are we those who keep going on producing the fruit of repentance? Is that the kind of people we are? Sometimes, to be honest, I, I, I fear that we forget about repentance as a people. You know, over the years I've caught up with um, different people who have started to take steps away from God. Uh, they've gone against what God wanted like one person who started a relationship with someone who wasn't interested in God. And this caused them over time to, to stop you know, coming to church regularly, as, as you'd expect. And in time, they started a sexual relationship. And then when things ended, when that relationship ended, they felt a bit lost. And they were kind of reassessing where they were at. And they reached out to me. And after listening for a while listening for quite a while. Eventually I asked them, have you actually said 
sorry to God? Have you actually turned back to him? And I was deeply concerned because no matter what I said, they just didn't seem to get that as a concept. The issue for them wasn't the hurt that they'd caused God. Do you know what it was? It was the hurt that they'd caused themselves. And to be honest, I fear we're becoming more and more like this. I fear we're getting slower and slower to repent in big ways and in small ways. We just had a series that's been pretty confronting, hasn't it? Loving God, loving God's people, leading people to Jesus. I don't know about you, but I'm sitting there at times thinking, there's things I need to repent of hearing this. I imagine we must have all come across stuff like that. So what are we going to do with that? Real repentance produces the fruit of repentance. We need each other to keep reminding each other, to keep turning back to God. You know, the thing about repentance is usually, first of all, we have a change of mind. That's first. Then we have a change of actions. But quite often, last of all to change is a change of how we feel about it, our feelings. And that's okay. It's okay if repentance is is hard and, and frustrating and faltering. What's not okay is presumption. Presumption that we're fine with God. Fine because we don't need to repent. Fine because somehow we're just intrinsically right with Him, whether we bother to turn to him, bother with him or not. We're not fine with God. The only way that we are prepared to face God is because Jesus was prepared to fight for us by dying in our place to wash us from what we could never wash ourselves from. That's how we are fine with God, by turning to Jesus. So of course we need to turn to him. And of course, we need to keep turning to him. The final thing this part of the Bible asks us is, do we care about others repenting? Do we see that in in the one area of life that matters most, most people are completely unprepared? Most people around us face God's anger and and they don't even know it. You know, as we've heard, this church was planted 13 years ago. And we've heard why it was planted. It wasn't so that people in the northeast didn't have to drive half an hour into the city on a Sunday. It was planted so that people in the northeast could hear that Jesus was prepared to fight for them, but they needed to be prepared to turn back to Him. We were planted to give everyone in the northeast an opportunity to hear about Jesus. Now, how do you think we're going with that? Is the job half done or a quarter done? Tea Tree Gully area has about 100,000 people in it. And so by my calculations, I wouldn't put too much faith in my calculations, but by my calculations, we have a quarter of a percent of people here, 0.25%. Which means for the job to be done, we each would need to have told 400 different people the news about Jesus in a way that they could understand. Not preaching at them, 
but in a relationship, in a way they could understand. 400 people. And we planted three churches. That's pretty good, isn't it? That's helped a lot. Well, again, by my dodgy calculations, if we add in Campbelltown and the council that Parak is in, we each need to talk to 475 people. It's getting worse. (laughs) But my point is, there's still an enormous task ahead of us, isn't there? Still an enormous task unfinished. But what we need to do is actually simple. The best way for us to get on with this task is to make sure we've repented ourselves. Make sure it's real repentance. And then make sure we share Jesus' heart that like God, we consider people worth fighting for. And so we carry on leading people to Jesus wherever we can so that they too can be prepared to meet him. Let me pray for us. Father, um, we thank you so much for Jesus, what he was prepared to do for us, so that as we turn to him, we could be completely washed, completely righteous, more than fine in your eyes, completely prepared to not just face you, but to face you without anger, and even more than that, to face you with an eternity embraced by you. A joyful eternity with you where there will be no more sin, sickness or death or anything that could cut us off from you forever. Father, help help us to turn to you genuinely and to keep turning to you. Hold us to you by the power of your spirit, we pray. And Lord, help us to be those who share your heart, to see those around us who are not prepared to meet you and who don't just turn away indifferently but in small ways and in big ways. Do what we can to call people to come to know you, the kind of God you are, in a way that they can understand. Lord, we, we are daunted by this work, but we pray that you would help us to do this work by your power in the ways that we can, individually and as a church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.